And welcome back, everybody, to the Cold War Cast. I am your host, Ryan Llewellyn. This is a podcast where we discuss the history and the pop culture of the Cold War. Today, we have a very fascinating story, and it's a true Cold War curiosity. And that is the story of the Ethiopians in the Korean War. Now, it's easy to think of the Korean War as an American war and definitely a Korean war. But really, it was turned into a true international affair by the United Nations. So America didn't declare war, but it was considered a United Nations policing action. Now, I know on the surface, this seems like kind of a chicken shit thing to do. But and we've discussed this in previous episodes, calling it a policing action and making it this somewhat nebulous international affair maybe helped keep the larger peace in the region by not turning it into a, a big uh, a world war, World War Three between the United States um, and friends and China and the Soviet Union. It put a little bit of distance there. So it was probably a good decision at the time. Now, once the North attacked the South in Korea, the United Nations convened and passed Resolution 83, which condemned the attack and also requested that a United Nations force go over there and make things right again by you know repelling the, the North and keeping the peace. Now, when this happened, it was passed in the United Nations. The Security Council, the members with veto powers at the time, were the Soviet Union, the United States, the United Kingdom, France, and China. And now, the China that was sitting at the table there in the United Nations was an extension from the government that was in Taiwan, the anti-communists. And the Soviet Union this is, of course, early in the United Nations, boycotted at this point. They saw this, you know, once the ball got rolling with the United Nations, they were like, yeah, this is, this is a farce. This is a giant extension of American foreign policy, and the cards are stacked against the communist world. And more than anything, they believe that the biggest uh, farce of this all was the fact that it wasn't the People's Republic of China sitting there representing China. It wasn't the communist. It was this exiled and defeated government there in Taiwan. So, you know, the Soviets kind of took their ball and went home and weren't there to put their foot down on this. And of course, the anti-communist Chinese, um, you know, they were going to condemn the attack too. So there wasn't a real... um, united front against the action here and it it is true at the time that with those two communist china and soviet union gone that there was really no one to oppose american foreign policy in the united nations now when the call went up many nations answered the call and if you look at the list of the countries that pledged forces to korea it's a lot of familiar faces you know, to the United States, a lot of American allies, the Commonwealth countries, the ne- <clears throat> the Netherlands, um, you know, uh, associated countries in Asia, you know, Thailand, uh, Philippines, and so forth. But there are a few ones that stick out at the time, um, one of them being Greece. 
The other one being Turkey, which, um, you know, we might actually do an episode on the Turkish forces in Korea because that's a really interesting story there in itself, too. Um, Colombia. But the one that I think is the real uh, record scratcher here is the Ethiopians. Now, the, the Ethiopian presence in this coalition seems really bizarre. Why would a fairly poor country in Africa join this coalition? They have no interest in Korea. Um, you know, they didn't really seem too aligned with anything, you know, communist or otherwise at the time. But it really reflects the reality of the early Cold War. And as it turns out, the decision to join the coalition by Ethiopia was a pretty astute move in the grand scheme of things, and we'll discuss that. Now, what's kind of funny about this is Ethiopia is often held up as the poster child for why collective security doesn't work. During um, the rumblings of the Second World War, I guess you would say, Ethiopia was attacked and invaded by Italy. And the League of Nations that was set up to to prevent things like this from happening was completely toothless to stop. And Haile Selassie, the emperor of Ethiopia, addressed the League of Nations. And you can find this uh, a transcript, I think, of this speech on YouTube and he makes a, a very good speech. It goes on for about 20 minutes, half an hour or so. And you could tell this guy is um, very, very sharp, very thoughtful. And he manages to wag his finger at everybody in the room that they, their words meant nothing, that they had nothing to that they could do to stop Italy, and at the same time that Ethiopia was acting as a good actor on the world stage, and things like arms shipments to Ethiopia were being stopped in the uh, the time leading up to the war, so they were kind of getting screwed over by the world that could enforce these mandates or you know requests, I guess you would say on you know little helpless countries like Ethiopia but you know, weren't able to stop a, uh, you know, honestly, a B-list power in Europe. So he, he's often held up as, um, or Ethiopia is often held up as, a, as an example of why um, internationalism can't work. But even though he was held, or Ethiopia was held up as why collective security doesn't work. They truly believed in the idea, the concept of it. So there was some altruism behind the decision to join the coalition. But there were also some more realistic reasons as well, too. Now, for one, because a lot of territory was up for grabs in the years after World War II and the fall of some of these empires, you know, mainly Italy, you know, as it relates to Ethiopia— there was Eritrea, which was up for grabs, which the Ethiopians believed was part of the Ethiopian Empire and was at one point. And even today, this is actually an issue in the news right now, where 
um, you know, there's conflict between Ethiopia and Eritrea. But the land was divided up, you know, there was Ethiopia, um, Eritrea, Somalia, right there in the Horn of Africa. And this is a strategically important part of the world. Um, a lot of oil shipments would be coming through the um, the Red Sea there and the uh, Suez Canal. And, you know, it, it, that's a just pretty good piece of real estate right there. And Ethiopia wanted it and felt that they should have it. So this was brought up in the United Nations. And as it turned out, not a lot of the world was really too into the idea of Ethiopia having this piece of land as opposed to it being independent. Now, the United States was, of course, the the power that loomed large in the United Nation. So if the Americans were, you know, able to put in a good word with for Ethiopia, it was implied that that would probably change some uh, change some opinions on who gets Eritrea. Because, you know, most countries in the world probably don't really care all that much about it specifically, but, you know, maybe just don't like the idea of um, consolidating land like this. You know, this is a time where uh, decolonization is really getting rolling. So it's not a good look. But if the United States is in your corner on this, um, they can twist a few arms and you know, something as simple as, uh, you know, giving up some troops or whatever, they can make it happen. So the Ethiopians um, consulted each other at the highest levels. Um, Their deliberations didn't take long at all. It was pretty much an overnight affair. And they decided that they would dedicate troops to the cause in Korea and with the implied um, stipulation that they would probably get Eritrea through the United Nations. And in addition to that, that also guaranteed American military aid and a closer alliance with the Americans who were the sole superpower at the time, or, you know, definitely the primary superpower um, in the world militarily and definitely financially. So Ethiopia was uh, looking to open up back for business after a uh, pretty rough time during World War II. So looked like a great deal for him. Now, this is honestly how a lot of these things tend to work. So if you look at, for instance, the uh, the Coalition of the Willing from the 2003 war in Iraq and the list of participating countries you know there's not a whole hell of a lot of typical American ally well you know you've got the um, United Kingdom in there but um, a lot of the countries that sent troops to that were the new fairly new countries in Eastern Europe which were looking to gain favor with the United States at the time um, in order to possibly get into NATO or have some sort of defense pact against the potential of Russian invasion. So Poland actually sent a very big contingent to, you know, relative uh, size-wise to Iraq. And, um, you know, I remember actually seeing the Polish troops there quite a bit, um, 
We had a Polish helicopter fly over our base once when I was in Iraq and nobody knew um, what it was. So like all the radios on the base were kind of buzzing like, you know, what the hell is it? You know, because it was an old Soviet one. Um, kind of funny. I made a comment on the radios that it, I, I noticed the markings that it was Polish and I got out there and said, this is a Polish helicopter because I can see the ejector seat. <laughs> you don't hear Polish jokes too often anymore. But um, anyway... So, you know, Georgia, the um, former Soviet Republic, they were there in Iraq, um, I believe Moldova, just all kinds of these countries. Now, obviously, they don't care about, you know, Islamic terrorism or, you know, the fact that planes hit the World Trade Center or anything like that. They're looking to gain favor with the United States. And it was the same thing in the situation with Ethiopia. Now... Typically, when they do this, usually countries give the least they can that looks somewhat significant. So you'll see a lot of countries perhaps might give like a a naval ship or some medical personnel. And that puts them on the list as friendly countries with the least amount of skin in the game because sometimes these things aren't politically um, popular in their home countries and you know if they just have a ship off sea or you know some support personnel or something they're not likely to take casualties and have it um, have it come up and hurt the uh, the political class domestically now in the case of Ethiopia they did the exact opposite Ethiopia sent her absolute best to the Korean War they put together a expeditionary battalion called the uh, the Cagnu Brigade or Cagnu Battalion, and this had um, the the name had significance within fairly modern Ethiopian history. It was the the name of a, a war horse that one of the emperors rode um, in a um, big battle where they defeated the Italians, um, you know, some fifty-ish years earlier. So they took these troops, they were more or less handpicked from the Imperial Guards divisions of Ethiopia. So a lot of these guys would have been um, kind of the cream of the crop of Ethiopian society. So, you know, very um, up-and-coming officers from good families and so forth. It wasn't like, um, you know, they took their kind of third tier let's get these guys out of our hair kind of units out of um for a while it was absolutely their best and this is a a smart move on their part too because it allows their young and aspiring up and coming officers to get some good experience and make connections with american military and um You know, like, this is looking far down the road for Ethiopia. Now, right away, they sent these guys to the highlands of Ethiopia to train for the war in Korea. Now, I've never been to Ethiopia, but I don't picture it as being being a very cold place. I know there's a lot of mountains there, and... You know, if I was to go to the highlands of Ethiopia, I'd, you know, I'd probably pack a jacket, but it's nothing like Korea, which is one of the coldest places in Asia that's not Siberia. But this is the best they can do. So they trained up in the mountains um, and got ready for the fight in Korea. And their training lasted six months. 
understand this was very intensive training. Um, they really took this seriously that their boys would go over there and and do the job. After those six months, an American ship picked them up and took them to Korea. When they finally got there, they um, disembarked and had a couple weeks uh, crash course training from the Americans on how to use some of their specialized equipment. And um, they also had a little bit of a acclimatization period. And it, as it turned out, the Americans ended up um, outfitting these guys because they didn't have the appropriate uh, cold weather attire. You know, that's just something not really in their wheelhouse in Ethiopia. So, you know, they got American um, overcoats, gloves, hats, this sort of thing, and um, got ready to go up into the mountains. Now, over the course of the Korean War, the Ethiopian forces got some pretty good distinctions from the American and coalition forces and by their enemies, the Chinese. Um, They were held in some sort of reverence. Out of the 5,000-ish troops from Ethiopia that made the voyage over there, 121 of them died. Um, You know, a few hundred were wounded. But the interesting thing is they had no prisoners taken. And that makes them unique out of all the countries that participated in the Korean War because every other country did have prisoners taken. Now, I've got to add a little asterisk to this too. And that is that the Ethiopians, they showed up after the um, the very chaotic fighting that happened in the final months of 1950 and early 1951, where you think of the uh, the Chosen Reservoir and um, the massive Chinese attack that that drove the coalition forces back uh, past the DMV. So they missed out on that. That's when the bulk of troops that were captured were captured and. By the time the Ethiopians got to Korea, the fighting was more static at that time. So I got to add a little bit of a, I I don't know, we have to, we have to bring that up. You know, that's, that's an important thing to compare them to, to other troops, but they did fight with distinction. Now I'm going to read a section from FLA's Marshall's famous book, Pork Chop Hill, which of course was made into a movie about the Korean war. And, um, it's a really good movie. The book, I, yeah, I don't know. I wasn't, this is one of the first times you really hear people say something like this, but I like the movie a lot more than the book. Um, you know, the book was very well written, very insightful from a military perspective, but um, I, I think the book, or excuse me, the film managed to um, kind of capture the overall picture better than um better than the book that the book really i i thought bogged you down in, in the moment instead of um being able to really put everything in in the big picture in the korean war but i'm going to read about uh, about a page or two of this book this is where they've got um kind of a good story about an ethiopian patrol And I'm just going to read kind of the introduction to that now. Like Horatius at the bridge or the screaming Ingalls at Bastogne, it was a classic fight ending in the clean triumph over seemingly impossible odds. 
But unlike other great tales of war which become legend, it went unsung, though it happened almost under the noses of the 163 war correspondents, then in Seoul. 40 minutes air flight from the fight. Held spellbound by the headline values of Operation Little Switch, they had neither time nor space for the reporting of epic courage. Such aberrations are common in modern warfare. Homeric happenings go unreported. Sometimes the bravest men meet death with their deeds known only to heaven. If another reason is needed for now unfolding the tale, there is this, that of all troops which fought in Korea. The Ethiopians stood highest in the quality of their officer-man relationships, the evenness of their performance under fire, and the mastery of techniques by which they achieved near-perfect unity of action in adapting themselves to new weapons during training and in using them to kill efficiently in battle. They couldn't read maps, but they never missed a trail. Out of dark Africa came these men, thin, keen-eyed, agile of mind, and 95% illiterate. They could take over U.S. Signal Corps equipment and in combat make it work twice as well as the best-trained American troops. When they engaged, higher headquarters invariably knew exactly what they were doing. The information which they fed back by wire and radio was far greater in volume and much more accurate than anything coming from American actions. Their capacities excelled only in one diversionary aspect of their soldierly arts. There are no better whiskey drinkers under the sun. They take it neat, a full tumbler at a time, without pause or chaser, and seem abashed that Americans can't follow suit. This unexampled skill might properly become a proper object for research by a top-level military mission. Their one lack was good press. The Turks, the Rocks, the Commonwealth Division, and others in the medley got due notice. But the Ethiopians stood guard along their assigned ridges in silence unbroken by the questions of itinerant correspondents. They were eager to welcome strangers and tell how they did it, but no one ever asked. If to our side, at the end as in be the beginning, they were the unknown battalion, to the communists they were a still greater mystery. When the final shot was fired, one significant mark stood to their eternal credit. Of all national groups fighting in Korea, the Ethiopians alone could boast that they had never lost a prisoner or left a dead comrade on the battlefield. Every wounded man, every shattered body had been returned to the friendly fold. That uniquely clean sheet was not an accident of numbers only. Knowing how to gamble with death, they treated it lightly as a flower. A night patrol, as he crossed the valley that prowled towards enemy works, the Ethiopian soldier knew that his chance of death was compounded. It was standing procedure in the battalion that if a patrol became surrounded beyond possibility of extraction, the supporting artillery would be ordered to destroy the patrol to the last man. That terrible alternative was never realized. Many times enveloped, the Ethiopian patrols always succumbed in breaking the fire ring and returning home to the base. If there were dead or wounded to be cared, carried, the officer or NCO leader was first to volunteer. When fog threatened to defuse the patrol, the Ethiopians moved hand in hand like children. Even so, though they deny it, these Africans are cat-eyed men with an especial affinity for moving and fighting in the dark. 
In most of the races of man, superstition unfolds with the night, tricking the imagination and stifling courage. It is not so with the Ethiopians. The dark holds no extra terror. It is their element. All right, so Ethiopia's experience in Korea worked out for them. They end up getting American favor, and, well, they got Eritrea. But it wasn't meant to be. Some, um, well, almost 20 years later, Ethiopia breaks out into civil war. And really, they've got a very unfortunate Cold War history because they start off very promising on one side of the Cold War and end up very, very tragically uh, on the other side of it. I think those of us that are uh, about my age, I'm 40, and older, um, think of Ethiopia as a very poor, um, unfortunate place of misery. You know, I remember seeing the uh, the pictures of the starving Ethiopian kids, um, you know, stomachs uh, extruded, um, flies buzzing around everywhere. Um, you know, just looked like nothing but dirt and sun and complete misery. And, um, you know, of course, you probably, if you're my age and older, remember hearing the Ethiopian jokes at the on the playground about the starving kids, <laughs> kind of sick. But um, Ethiopia really, really went the other way during the Cold War. Very unfortunate. The, um, the, the Dang regime came into play in 1974. And at this point, the, uh, the proud sons of the elite that went off to go fight on the uh, American Yankee imperial, imperialist side against the you know, champions of the people, the communists, they were shunned by these guys. Now, today, there is still a monument to the Ethiopian contingent in Korea, in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia. Some of these guys are still even alive as well, too. And it's just an interesting chapter of Ethiopian history and really an interesting chapter in Cold War history as well, too. All right, I'm going to leave it there. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, I thought this was kind of a fun one because I know in all my studies of the Korean War, when you see it pop up that the Ethiopians were there, it's really one you get kind of curious about. And that's the case for the Turks as well, too, which is an interesting Cold War story. And I think if that's not the next episode we'll do, it will be one of the next episodes is talking about the Turkish contingent in the Korean War. All right. If you want to get in touch with me, the best way to do it is get on Instagram and look me up uh, under Cold War Cast. Hit me up there. And this show is also sponsored by my business, Red Dragon Herbs and Teas. Go to reddragonherbs.net. I know it's definitely too late to get things out for Christmas, but um, you know, if you have any gift giving uh you need to do late christmas presents uh valentine's days just around the corner kind of um hit us up if you need any suggestions reach out to us there too and uh we can help you out that's all i've got for now thanks for listening i will talk to you later